0: When you are pushing that hard as an executive, uh, and I was not the CEO then, but I was definitely climbing the corporate ladder. But when you are pushing and driving and doing and hitting goals and serving everybody else, uh, and you're not always serving yourself and you're not recharging and re-nourishing because you're burning out, what happens for me, and I know it's common in the industry of all high-level people, whether it's entertainment or even sports, is then something to substitute to nurture yourself, whether it's drugs or alcohol, or sex or something that people get uh, overindulged in because they feel like they deserve it because they've been driven so hard during the day and they, and they can't always share all their feelings either. When you're kind of at the top of an executive level, it's not like you can share all of your stuff like you're in a, if you're in an employee pool with all your mates.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with a former Warren Buffett CEO, former CEO of a real estate firm that turned over $25 billion in sales per year and is the writer of the Amazon number one bestseller Lead to Gold and newly released The IGI Principles. He studied at Indiana University, Purdue, is a certified Marshall Goldsmith stakeholder coach and has held volunteer roles at International Rotary, San Diego Blood Bank, and the North San Diego County Chamber of Commerce. His career has included roles at Grubb and Alice, First Capital, Prudential California Realty, uh, Windermere Exclusive Properties, Centennial Escrow Company and Real Living Real Estate. At present, he is the Strategic Board Advisor at I Am Life and consulting and coaching firm The Alchemy Advisors. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a transformational C-suite coach who helps executives and companies become more productive, garner more profit, experience more purpose, and become a servant leadership-minded individual. Steve Rogers. Steve, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Greg, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. How, across the world, there in a whole different time zone. So uh, w- welcome to be part of your uh, morning and uh, soon to be my early evening.
2: Yeah, and, and really appreciate your time as you're traveling to L.A., and it looks like uh, you've got a beautiful sunny day there as well, which is fantastic. So for you, where did you grow up and what was childhood like for you?
0: Yeah, I was uh, I grew up across the United States, mostly on the East Coast of the United States because my dad was a Navy man. Uh, So my parents had five boys in seven years, and they popped out a bunch of uh, kids. And uh, when you're in part of the Navy and the military, you go where your dad gets stationed. So we were up and down the East Coast from Florida to Maryland, all over the place. Uh, And then my dad retired from the military after 20 years. Uh, We ended up in the Midwest, uh, Indiana. So I grew up uh, uh, my uh, later years uh, up until I was 21 in Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where I went to IUPUI. Uh, I, in Indiana University and then when I was 21 I kept going west I, I heard the old phrase go west young man go west young man so I ended up in California which I thought was going to be a two-week vacation when I was 21 and I literally the night before I was supposed to go back home was so depressed I was going to go back to Indiana and the life that I had created at that time uh, I made a decision to not go back I unpacked my suitcase asked someone if I could stay on their couch for a few weeks so I got a job uh, and I literally never left California after my visit there so I've been out here for 30 plus
2: years so was it the girls was it the beach life what was it what drew you to California <laughs> you know it was it was all of those things it was just such a
0: a lifestyle of I mean within two weeks I had been to the the beach the mountains the city Los Angeles and the in the mindset of the people uh it just felt like there was so much more potential opportunity for me with open-minded people from all walks of life. Uh, and not that Indiana is not a great place, but it's very conservative and very Midwest. And you know, in the, if you're in the United States, people use the word Midwest because it's kind of like the middle of the country and it's very conservative type values, family values. Uh, but most people, not most, but many people stay in the neighborhoods in which they grew up and they stay in jobs for certain periods of times. and. Um, I was, didn't want to get stuck in that from the, at least the neighborhoods I was in. Uh, and so uh, for me, California just felt like a vibrant um, place that I could prosper and grow uh, and have a really good time being in wonderful weather every day. And I, I thought, oh, no, I don't have to sc- uh, scrape windows with snow and I don't have to shovel driveways and uh, don't have to be humidity with mosquitoes all over me. This looks like a paradise to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so when you are at school, were you more of the leader of the pack or a follower Yeah, I was probably definitely more
0: of a leader, even though I was only number two in line in my family of five boys, five brothers. I was the second. Uh, Everyone always thought I was the oldest and the leader of the family because I just had a natural leadership ability. Uh, And I had that from a very young age. Um, And when I was in school, I always was very independent. And instead of being a leader, I guess I would call myself more of a rebel. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was more of a rebel than a leader. And I was kind of a very rebellious, rambunctious teenager Um, who had a good heart but also got in a lot of trouble along the way in my late teens. So I actually moved out of my home when I was 17 years old. Uh, My dad was a very strong military guy, as I said, and his motto was, this is my house, these are my rules, and if you don't like it, you can get out. Uh, and so uh, after butting heads of uh, a 17-year-old uh, with, his, with his dad, uh, I was working full-time at a pizza place at the time, I think, and going to school. I thought, I'm just going to do this on my own. So I packed up everything in my trunk after a, uh, an intense conversation one night and uh, ended up finishing the last year of high school on my own. So when i started going to, uh, to college i said i'm going to go to community college because i can't afford anything else and um i, I knew that i had the lead through trying to create and motivate on my own at that point because my parents had said well if you're going to be on your own then you're on your own uh <laughs> so I, I guess that is part of leadership of uh forming the path and breaking through the fear and you know creating what you need to create
2: you know so <laughs> through that rebellious phase and i'm not sure if you've ever got out of your rebellious phase but while we're in that young rebellious phase what was the greatest piece of advice that uh, someone shared with you that had a profound impact on your life? Um, it, I
0: don't know so much if it was a person at that time. It was through a lot of the reading that I was doing. So when I was a late teen in Indiana, I got very much into personal development and self-growth. Uh, you know, self So I started reading Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, um, Edgar Cayce, a woman named Shakti Gawain, Uh, You know, Tony Robbins stuff. So I was very much, you know, 15, 16, 17. Uh, But I guess what I remembered distinctly at that time was a common theme of that you are the co-creator of your life with the universe. Uh, and with what I call higher power God. And I realized that I I was in charge of my own destiny. And what I learned from a lot of those personal development things, and then I started seeing some of those people speak, and then I got absolutely wise advice, of course, along the way, because I've had many, many mentors since then. But in those early, early days, when you're talking about it, what comes to mind is I was just reading, I was so voraciously reading, and I could not get enough of personal development and self-help and taking control of your life, um, and that you could really create anything you wanted in the world Um, If you had a plan and you focused on your plan and you had steps and processes and you, you know, like Napoleon Hill says, anything the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. And I said, well, what does that actually mean? So I guess that was the first thinking of quote, you know, life changing thoughts that I had. And then from that, you know, later, later in the years, I had many mentors that I either paid for, cause I had coaches, uh, you know, through my, through my entire life. Uh, and then a lot of bosses and leaders, and you mentioned Warren Buffett, of course, a, a highlight of my career, uh, in many ways. So, um, those are some of the early thoughts though, I have about good advice.
2: Yeah. So, you know, you had the opportunity to be involved with Warren who reportedly has, I think, you know, from a couple of months ago there, A net worth of approximately uh, US eighty million dollars. Uh sorry, eighty billion dollars, not million dollars. One of those B things, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it like working with Warren and, and what separates someone like him from many other people in the world of business?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, it was definitely a highlight. The company that I worked for, which you mentioned, was called Prudential California Realty. And I had been with that company for 15 years from the, the uh, in total. And, and Warren Buffett bought that company about eight years into that cycle. So seven years, it was under uh, an entity under Berkshire Hathaway called Home Services of America. And Warren had started um, in the, uh, probably the late, Uh, 90s started buying up independent real estate companies for the purpose of wanting to get in the real estate biz. And he always liked the real estate biz, but he never called it Berkshire Hathaway. He just bought companies and let them keep their name. So when he bought our company, we were a very large company in California. They'd never been in California. Um, And um, we were a massive amount of their profit on the real estate division. So when I found out they bought us, um, and then I was uh, told I was going to be able to go meet him. Because at the time, I think I was either the the general manager of the president at the time. I was not the CEO of the time. And I was actually quite pissed, quite frankly, when they told me they were going to sell because I'd been being promised equity and stakes in the company and all that. And it was right after September 11th. And when September 11th happened, the real estate market went in the tank. So the owner of the company, my boss and mentor for many years, uh, I knew he was not going to be able to fulfill his promises of, of delivering the stock options that he was supposed to have given me in the original company because they were not yet at that level. And then he quickly sold after September 11th. So initially I was mad. After I found out they wanted to groom me as the CEO and they wanted me to stay and they made a very lucrative package for me to stay, then it made sense and I got over my hurt about it. Uh, But within about a year of that, uh, the first year there, uh, I remember flying for the first time to Omaha to meet Warren and it was definitely uh, intimidating. I mean, here, like I, I mentioned to you that I moved out of my house when I was 17. I only went to probably three years or so of college um, as community college and university, but I never ended up finishing college. Uh, I moved out to California and I continued to get into other industries and entrepreneurial stuff. So I actually never got my degree. And I always had kind of a hangup about that because I thought, oh, I felt insecure. And I felt like maybe I was gonna end up in some room uh, of a boardroom somewhere that someone had a speech, a special key to a special door to a special answer that I didn't have, uh, and I thought, God, if that's ever going to happen, it's surely going to be when I meet Warren Buffett. So, <laughs> flying on the plane, I was a little intimidated, and I quickly got over that because I thought, well, if I didn't, if I hadn't done the work, and if I hadn't created the revenue and the profit opportunities within the divisions in which I ran, I would have never been on this plane flying to meet Warren. So it, when I met him, it was a group of about 30 people. We had a cocktail party, which then led to a dinner right after. But when I saw him the very first time, it was just a surreal experience because I'd seen him on the news. I'd seen him on Forbes magazine. I'd seen him in Inc. Magazine. I'd you know, heard about Warren for years and he was so charming and so um, uh comforting and how he spoke to each and every person. He made each and every person feel exactly like they were the only person in the room. And he really had the ability to speak on any topic from Cherry Cokes to Dairy Queen to stock market. So what I learned from Warren in that first experience was he definitely was a guy that did not put on airs, even though, yes, he may have been worth, you know, at that time he was probably worth 50 or 60 billion versus 80 billion. Um, But he didn't, he felt like somebody's grandpa, that was giving sage advice. And over the years of seeing him engage in meetings, and it's not like I answered to Warren Buffett. It's not like I spoke to him every day and it's not like he was my supervisor. But I definitely was in conferences and meetings and events with him. uh, And to see him on on the floor of the Berkshire Hathaway Shareholder Conference, where there's 20,000 people at the Quest Stadium in in, uh, Omaha is amazing to to watch. Uh, His knowledge and his expertise of what he owns and why he bought it. His knowledge and expertise of how businesses run and what makes them tick, Uh, his expertise on finding talented leaders and letting them do what they do best, uh, and then providing the income necessary for growth in in money and income uh, was was amazing formula that worked for him. And thus he's now, you know, owns all types of companies and all kinds of industries that he understands. I mean, he's not a tech guy. He has said numerous times, he's not one of those tech giants because he said, look, I don't really understand technology that much. And I only invest in things that I understand and that I think are good for you know the, the middle America or for everyone in America. And for me, that wasn't, for him, it wasn't tech. So even though he had the ability to always venture off into things that could have been the next Facebook of the world, He stayed true to, you know, like Dairy Queen ice cream cones and furniture and, you know, jewelry and uh, houses and, you know, buying stocks in companies like Coca-Cola and that kind of stuff. So I learned from him many, many things. Uh, Probably the best thing that I learned from him overall was to continue to be yourself in your own skin, even when everyone outside the world sees you differently because you have money. He continued to he continued to be the same man. Um, you know, regardless of the, the dollar signs behind his image, uh, which I thought was very impressive.
2: Hmm. Very impressive. So, so you climbed the corporate ladder and found yourself in these CEO roles as you were speaking about there. And, and obviously for some pretty large companies, what do you think was in your DNA that allowed you to be successful as a CEO? Uh,
0: I think, you know, one thing was the drive. Um, I definitely had the drive and I'm not sure, you know, and I've come over the years to study personality styles as well. Uh, and how people's nature, how is made up, whether it's their mind, their emotions, their psyche, their environment, uh, et cetera, their soul, um, their purpose, et cetera. And I think that there are some people that are naturally driven, just hungry and driven and want to achieve. And there's other people that are more nurturers uh, or they're more teachers and they're more comfortable in that zone. For whatever reason, I came into this planet and I did have a high drive, number one. Number two, I had a quest for learning and for growing, even though it was not the traditional route. Uh, you know, I didn't go from high school to university and then get a master's degree and all of that stuff, but I learned in the trenches by focused learning. So um, what's great about you know, the current day that we live in with technology and learning and mentorship and coaching and online programs, you can really hyper-local learn what you need to learn to go start something. Um, You know, I have many people that said, hey, I wanted to start a mortgage company. So I just Googled, hey, how do you start a mortgage company? Or I wanted to develop an app. You know, people, I mean, there's amazing what is at your fingertips or people that you can get access to that help you do stuff. So I guess one of the things is drive. The next thing was quest for knowledge and quest for uh, specific knowledge. And then whenever I got into a certain field, I really did have always a mind of servant leadership. Um, In my early days, I was in the restaurant hotel industry. So it was definitely pounded into me uh, from training about being of service, you know, bartending, waiting tables, managing restaurants, etc. That's really being of service. But when I started uh, phasing over into real estate and then also leadership, I kept that same mentality of being of service to others. What could I do to serve them at the highest level in whatever field I was? So I think those three things off the top of my head are probably some of the things that allowed me then to excel into executive roles and eventually a CEO. Um, And then I also, I guess, a fourth thing would be reducing my my fear level um, and increasing my tolerance to fear, uh, because fear is one of the biggest things that hold us back. And when my self-doubt or my fear of not being able to accomplish something was my glass ceiling for my own future i found ways to as quickly as i could break through my fear barriers uh, and step into arenas that caused me fear versus running away from fear
2: mm. yeah really interesting I, I think we're seeing a lot more ceos and, and leaders now understanding that people don't work for you you work for them and and being able to switch that mindset and if you already have that servant leadership it can produce some great benefits and great results from your team.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, when I was first the suit and tie guy and climbing the corporate ladder, I probably was a little bit more of I'm the guy that has a title. I'm the guy that's in charge and not that I dictated to people, but I definitely, when I was in stages or leading people or leading sales meetings, I definitely thought I had to be the guy that had all the answers. Like I figured if I was the general manager, if I was the executive vice president in my early days, like in my late 30s, um, you know, probably early 40s. Uh, no, probably in my late 30s. By my 40s, I think I'd shifted. But I was thinking, oh, I've got to be that guy. Like I had to put on that mask of having all the answers. And what I realized at that time is even though it worked to a degree, I was not near as vulnerable in my shortfalls and not near as vulnerable in my inadequacies. And I was not near as vulnerable in my um, uh, lack of knowledge or expertise in certain things. And as soon as I realized opening up more to being vulnerable, being of service and asking others to include all of their talents right from the get go and being vulnerable that I didn't have all the answers, that I was not perfect, that I did not have knowledge about this certain project. It amazingly opened up the team's ability to want to chip in and help, excuse me, at a much higher level. So I shifted my ability, you know, so getting on stages and being much more vulnerable and raw about more about my inadequacies than my successes seemed to work for me even better and made me feel more authentic and being a leader than what I had been prior.
2: Yeah, when I was uh, doing a bit of research around you, a couple of things popped up that I thought were really interesting. Uh, One was, I realized fear was holding me back. My own ego-driven excuses were preventing me from pursuing my bliss. Can you explain what that means to you?
0: Yeah, I you know, there's a great book um, that Stephen Pressfield wrote called It's Either The War of Art or the Art of War. I always get it mixed up, but he talks a lot about resistance. And I've you know, followed a lot of leaders over the years and, and fear and the quotes about fear you know, uh, have been around for a long time. All I have to do is put the word fear into the internet and all kinds of quotes and things will come up. So I've always known that fear is a deep part of our human condition. Um, and I always knew um, that when I did things that were the most exhilarating to me or the most um, thrilling or made my soul feel most alive It was when I was either pushed or forced to do something fearful that I didn't want to do or something where I had a brick upside the head moment that I had to do something, or I challenged myself to do something. So I knew in that it was energy. And I've done a lot of study about the makeup of the world of how everything is just energy, you know, whether it's a a duck or a pond or a car or a human being or a baby or an apple, everything is just made up of energy. So I knew that fear was also energy. And I realized that in in, in restricting my fear, that it was holding me back from some of the bliss or some of the purpose and passion I had, because my fear was holding me back in the mindset of who do I think I am? I can't really do that. I don't have the education for that. I don't have the money for that. So the fear of all that thinking, instead of allowing me to create, it, it restricted my, um, My purpose and my bliss. And once I started realizing, okay, I have to now find out once I go through fear and I have a quote that I have just used for myself for many years and I ended up putting it in my first book, but fear is also resistance. So fear, you know, anytime you start having dreams and aspirations and you want to do something, all of a sudden things are flowing and then boom, you get doors in front of you, you get doors slammed on, you get hurdles. And that's resistance. And what I realize is that's part of the universe. And like just as there's gravity, if you hold an apple up, it's going to fall to the ground. Well, creating dreams beyond the norm. Also, the universe has resistance. It's like breaking through the sound barrier. You know, there's a certain field of energy you have to break through into go into creation because something new is being created. So I came up with this quote that said, um, breaking through resistance is the price you pay for the dream you say you want. Mm-hmm. So I realized that every time I was finding resistance, my uh, purpose was to find a way to break through or break over or break into that resistance. And when I did, and that was also defined as fear immediately, almost within seconds or days, immense power and excitement and enthusiasm enthuse back into me to allow me to have enough fuel to go to the next level of what I needed to go to. So that fear thing has been fascinating to me uh, that that's a reservoir of energy that is where I can then, it's like a camel in the desert that has to get to a certain place to get water. When we're breaking through those fear things, that's again, where you get that nourishment to then go to your next bliss or your next passion or your next purpose.
2: Oh, love that approach. And and I think that's really important. You talk about energy there. And one of the big things, or like the work that I do is all focused on energy as the number one currency in leadership. And, you know, when you tie everything back, it all comes down to how do you invest energy? How do you res- restore energy? How do you uh, bring your own energy? How do you create energy in a room? How do you, and what type of energy do you want to bring out of the person that you're interacting with or the people you work with uh so really fascinating to see that your connection there between energy and talking around bliss
0: what was it yeah and i noticed that i mentioned to you as well that i you know i did a little research on you as well before i started uh getting uh introduced to you here and on the show and i was fascinated by your history of being a uh, a high performance athlete and talk about energy Talk about the energy that it takes to swim or bike or run at the levels in which you were doing that, not only from your body physically doing that, but from the mindset that you had to have to be able to psych yourself up to the level and then to go compete you know, slap a number on your chest or back or butt or wherever it's going to go. I saw that one thing about it, your pants that it split. <laughs> you had split. And so, but just that, I mean, think about all the energy that that takes and the preparation, the training, the, the thought that you could even do it. And then when you're in it, if you're not in the top three or the not top two or the top five or the top 10, then all of a sudden the energy that it takes even to end up in that, in the first time, then you're trying to shave off seconds off of things, which takes more energy. So I found that fascinating that you had the ability um, and the, your own DNA and your own drive to convert that as well. Cause that's something I have not been gifted to do. I was never a gifted athlete by any means at the level. And I didn't take my energy and time and commitment to do that as you did. Um, and so uh, it's not that my body physically and mine couldn't have, but I didn't choose that path. And I knew that the energy that that would have took, um, for whatever reason at that time was not in my DNA. And now that I'm in my mid fifties, I'm not sure that I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm glad to say that I'm better health in my fifties than I was in my thirties and forties, but I'm curious for you on that mindset about energy and converting energy and what you eat and when you sleep and how you, you know, pr- how you train, H- how, how early in your life did that start becoming a passion for you?
2: Oh, I think since I was a swimmer from probably the age seven or eight, um, you know it it was just a normal part you know people talk around you know meditation and things like that I mean, we were doing visualizations and, and centering we were eating really good food um, obviously exercise was part of what we do recovery was the most important thing from a very young age and what's fascinating is i was very lucky to be both an individual athlete and also team athlete at a very high level and when you're a team Your likely, your possibility to win is 50%. It's got very high odds. You know, so you can, there's only two people. Well, well, there's two, three options. One you can draw, one you can lose, one you can win. So there's three options going into every single game. Whereas an individual athlete, uh, you can stand on some of the start lines in Ironman and you've got, you know, a couple thousand people. If you stand in a marathon, you might have 30,000 people, but there can only be one winner. So very, very different mindsets on how you approach it. And to actually be a champion in an individual sport takes a different mentality to what it does in a team sport. And I think mm. if you approach business like that as well, if you try and to approach it as an individual, the success rate is really low. But when you approach it as a team, you can have a lot more wins. So I was very fortunate to, to have those experiences. One of the fascinating things that, I find, and, and a lot of athletes struggle with this, and not just athletes. People that are in very specialist, high-performing areas that are um, that require a lot of intense focus. Um, you know, being CEO is kind of like this as well. When you step out of it, there's a change because you, you've got this. You're you're working at a higher level in in the way that you're processing things, the way that you you build your routines, etc. As well. But what happens if you're in a physical Uh, thing like being an athlete is you know when you get recovery wrong so recovery is actually the art of when you get better in both Mm -hmm. in in anything in life it's not when you're working and and driving your brain and you're frying it it's actually when you let it recover and rejuvenate and restore when you're an athlete it's all physical so you you can tell all right well I've worked too hard today so I can feel it in my muscles it's telling me to recover so I can feel fresher Um, I can't run that fast today or I can't push that amount of force or I'm making mistakes because I'm fatigued. When it comes to work, being a CEO in that leadership space, it's not a physical fatigue that is occurring. It's a psychological fatigue. And unless mm. there's a catastrophic event, it's very, very gradual. So you don't actually realize what's happening because the body's very good at adjusting to micro changes. And so it just feels right. normal. But what it's actually happening is the psychological energy is going down and you don't know what's happening until it's too late. Now you've seen the video, but it's just for the listeners to explain that, that someone who's so used to pushing so much energy, when you come into the workforce, it's actually very, very hard to stay disciplined and not try and keep working until you feel that physical fatigue. Cause you could be working right. hundred hours a week. Right. And, and you don't feel that tired because it's a different right. tired. But then obviously you can have long term effects. So, yeah, fascinating. Thank you for the question, too, by the way. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think, too, for CEOs, executives or any high driven people, one of the unfortunately the path that I took uh, in my early days, my late 30s, I was talking about Um, is when you are pushing that hard as an executive, uh, and I was not the CEO then, but I was definitely climbing the corporate ladder. But when you are pushing and driving and doing and hitting goals and serving everybody else, uh, and you're not always serving yourself and you're not recharging and re-nourishing because you're burning out, what happens for me, and I know it's common in the industry of all high-level people, whether it's entertainment or even sports, is then something to substitute to nurture yourself, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex, or something that people get uh, overindulged in because they feel like they deserve it because they've been driven so hard during the day and they and they can't always share all their feelings at either when you're kind of at the top of an executive level it's not like you can share all of your stuff like you are in a, if you're in an employee pool with all your mates and you're talking about what's happening in the office as a CEO uh, sometimes they say it's lonely at the top. And I think a lot of people in those high pressure positions uh, and I have unfortunately had a bout with myself. Now, luckily, I was able to overcome that. And, uh, you know, I used it as a great learning tool and an obstacle overcoming life. And but I in that energy shift of uh, recharging in positive ways. Some of us as leaders in the industry can recharge in negative ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that we, that we really have to be aware of as leaders, because when you're constantly serving and giving and doing and performing and being, uh, you know, a, a, a few drinks or a few uh, this side or another uh, can lead to indulgence because you are, if you're a high A personality, and you're used to doing things at a very high level. Sometimes that also nurtures into addictions that are not positive. Even though you know driven addiction and work sometimes can be looked at society like, oh, look how successful you are. But there are many people that are very successful that don't have a balanced work life or family life or health life, etc. So as you talk about in, in your in your work and, and I talk about in my now, which I wish I would have known earlier in my days, is as ba- some kind of balance that is, tra- is that has a trade-off because you can never be fully balanced every day and every every week or every month of the year, but you have to be aware of when you're giving more to one thing and how long you're gonna let that other thing give before you then re-nourish it again. I don't ever believe that life can be fully balanced at all times and all places. It's just not possible. Um, But it doesn't mean you can't track and measure and improve upon Areas of your life that are important to you, um, uh, within just like you do at work. I mean, we track PLs and we track balance sheets and we track sales records. Yeah, uh, you know, I talk with my clients a lot about tracking your body, your being, your bonds, your business, your relationship with your higher power. You know, that's kind of stuff that that can that can also
2: help. Mm, interesting. Do you mind sharing? You know, for you when you were in that full on, highly driven state. What did you, what was your, what did you fall into? You know, I think before we talked, you talked about weight issues and things like that. So can you tell us a story around, you know, where you may have gone into an addiction that wasn't so positive and how did you get yourself out of that?
0: Yeah. uh, For me, the one that, I mean, I definitely had a weight issue. I mean, I was always, I looked, I mean, I was a fat dude, just I'll put it that way. I was, I I was, I was, I always had a weight uh, problem as a kid. I played football. I was in sports. I wasn't like a massive athlete, but I was, I mean, I played baseball and football, but when you eat like a football player, And then you stop playing football and you keep eating like a football player. And then you're also partying and drinking in your early twenties. It's amazing how many pounds can go on. So, and then in the workplace, what ended up happening is I was in an environment, you mentioned in real estate and real estate was a lot of socializing evening events, Mm -hmm. parties, cocktail parties, dinner, socializing. So part of my work environment was doing a lot of entertaining. Um, And um, especially being in the restaurant business or in my early days, I was used to managing hotels and bars and so I I understood a lot about wines and cognacs and alcohol and I really enjoyed it and I liked it. Unfortunately, as I got more into the, the career of executive world. Most people could go out to dinner and have a glass of wine with dinner, or maybe a cocktail, and maybe they might have an after-dinner drink. This is in the days before, you know, even uh, drinking and driving is as is intense as it is, is now. And I'm so I can't think, I think back on some of the stuff that I did in my 20s or 30s. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, how did I do that at work and go to an event and then drive home that night? Um, but anyway, what ended up happening is since I've always been an overachiever. I realized that the alcohol was then going into my evenings when I got home and then I'd drink when I got home and then I'd have another drink. And then I'd. um, So uh, now I was still climbing the corporate ladder. I still put the suit and tie in every day. But more more than not, each day of the week, I had hangovers almost every day going in to try and put the face in the suit and the tie on. Um, and since I was such a driven, higher performance person, it didn't affect, I didn't lose my job over it. And I didn't, you know, and I, and I've been married for 30 years and I didn't lose my marriage over it, but definitely I was at a point where I had a massive problem and I, and I it was starting to get, the, it was starting to crush my internal soul and that's what it felt like. And so I ended up getting help. I ended up getting uh, help uh, from an outpatient program and I went to a, 12 week program in the evenings after I got off work about addiction and alcohol and uh, started uh, some programs in AA, and that was 18 years ago. But I needed to have something that was really, that broke me free to really surrender uh, to my, uh, inadequacies as a human and my addictions were consuming me. So I, and I knew if I didn't do that, I would not be sitting here talking to you today. There's no way I would, I I would have crumbled at some point. There's no question in my mind. So I'm very, very blessed that the addiction led me to a recovery, which led me to higher purpose, which led me to higher service, which led me to higher empathy Which led me to higher understanding of how vulnerable life is and how fragile it is and and how much I have to uh, respect it more than I was prior.
2: Mm. And looking, you know, you've talked about earlier in the session around having a number of different coaches throughout your career and, you know, talking about that higher service, etc. What did you learn from being coached by a monk? Ah,
0: That's a good one. Yeah, this and this gentleman is definitely a nun- monk. His name is Tom. And Tom was part of the Self-Realization Fellowship that Paramahansa Yogananda founded. He came over from Indi- India in his early 20s and didn't speak a lick of English and brought Eastern uh, you know, practices to the West uh and they, they now have temples all over the world called srf or self-realization fellowship and tom uh went in i think he was a monk for 16 or 20 years uh and then he ended up getting out of the monkhood um, and opened up yoga studios and, and and ended up getting married later in life um but he literally was a monk for 16 or 18 years i think what i learned from him was um a lot of things uh he's a great yoga instructor but as far as a coach Uh, He was all about heart and all about love and all about the essence of relationships between one human and another human. So every time I was in coaching sessions with him, yes, we would talk about business and yes, we would talk about um, spirituality and yes, we would talk about relationship, but he always got down in his coaching elements to the word or the practice of love. And he would not let me hang up on a call without letting me know what i had done for the week of something that was an expression of love to my family or others or where i was experiencing or finding love or he would challenge me on how i was going to show more love in the world as i went out into it so it was really i mean he's just a he calls himself a love master so what i learned from him was that at the end of the day i don't care if you are uh, a ceo or you're a musician or a teacher or a um homeless person Everybody in our human uh, uh, society from the beginning of man to the end of man wants some form of connection and and love. People want to be loved. People want to be appreciated. People want to feel valued. And so he coached me in ways to not hold that back in my business world of expression, um, and to not separate those as much as I was. So he really helped me to blend those in, like even having a conversation with you about it right now, um, just about not only talking about it, but then being and doing. <coughs>
2: you, you talk and, and there's it, and a really fascinating insights there around love. And I think that's so important because we get so caught up in doing, we forget to reflect on what we have done and what we are doing that, that helps people helps ourselves and and you know helps helps the human race as well what is spiritual intelligence and why does it belong in our business yeah that's
0: a, uh, thank you for asking that question that really has become my evolution of of um of my my present and all my future work that I want to do around spiritual intelligence and what spiritual intelligence is if you think about <laughs> Um, you know, we've all heard about intellect or IQ. We've heard a lot in over the previous years about emotional intelligence. Um, And, you know, we're hearing a lot now in in theory and in practice in all of our lives about artificial intelligence, about how technology is, uh, you know, whether it's Siri or Alexa or whomever, or if you're going to, you know, any chat boxes or technology pieces that intelligence uh, of the the computer tech world is a fraction as to, as to how smart our own brains are, but artificial intelligence is changing the way the world interacts right now from healthcare to school systems to the Department of Motor Vehicles, everything is using some type of artificial intelligence. I think about technology a lot and apps and Wi-Fi signals and Google and uh, Facebook and the phenomenon of all that. And I realize that's also energy. So we started this conversation about talking about energy and everything is made up of energy. And to me, the highest form of energy is spiritual energy and spiritual energy is an intelligent being, uh, form of, of life. So I started doing a lot of my own study and research for my own practice and for my own beliefs and spiritual beliefs and spiritual practices that for me, my quest to learn more about spiritual intelligence in an operating system of my being that already exists is crucial. So just like when you have an iPhone or an Android or any kind of a phone and we have to get an upgrade, that software or that operating system within that device is something that just makes it work. So to me, what spiritual intelligence is, it's allowing yourself or your business to open up to that's even an element that's needed, number one, And then once you realize it's needed, how do you allow that to become your most important operating system? Not your intellect, not your emotional EQ, but actually spiritual intelligence, which is your connection to higher power, whatever you define as your higher power, God, Yahweh, Buddha, Krishna, Jesus, mother nature, the ocean, whatever it might be that you feel is higher than yourself, that that proves that there's something outside of you that has an intelligence. Something that has the intelligence to be able to have the waves come in and out every day, the moon, the sun, the stars, the grass grow, the bees buzz, that intelligence, that energy, to me, has a collective consciousness. And I do actually call that God. And to me, the definition of God is simply the sum of all that is. And if I believe that God is the sum of all that is, which is then the energy all manifested into one spiritual intelligence that allows the world and the universes to operate I'm a piece and a part of that particle of that. And so my my purpose now as a human being and a spiritual being and then through my businesses and through my work is to figure out how to be more aware of that and how to function when I make decisions and choices in my life and in those with those around me that are affected by the intelligence I have from a spiritual level uh, that then guide the rest of the choices in my life moving forward. And then hopefully that uh, encouraging others to do the same.
2: Hmm. Very powerful. You've... Your first book, uh, Lead to Gold, what was the catalyst to developing that book and, and what, why would someone read it?
0: Yeah, thank you. And the title can be either lead to gold or lead to gold. It's got it's got a it's a transferable back and forth. And it came about because the name of my company is Alchemy Advisors. And I chose the name Alchemy for a couple different reasons. One, I just love the word alchemy. I like how it sounds. I like how it, 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 it is. I like the meaning that it's about transformation and transforming from transmuting from something to another. Uh, I love uh, the book, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, uh, which is a book that's been around for a long time that millions and millions of people have read around the world, which really is a, a fable about the important things in life. And so when I named my company, The Alchemy Advisors, actually, the fr- the book that I just wrote now, which is IGI, or uh, I term it as Iggy, Iggy Principles, kind of like get jiggy with it. It's kind of Iggy, Iggy Principles, which I'll, I was expecting that to be my first book. Uh, but I was not brave enough five years ago to write it yet. So I had Lead to Gold come out, which was um, uh, a little bit of a history about my path climbing corporate America uh, and then some, some tips and processes on integrating uh, daily practices into your life and business that can help you have uh, uh, more happiness. Um, I definitely shared a lot of my... Uh, downfalls in the book and how i overcame them that hopefully would inspire someone else and there's a you know a practical story in there about someone who did start as a manager of a company and eventually became a ceo of that company that was a multi-billion dollar organization so i guess the story of that original book it was my first book there's lots of things looking back i would change it was not a perfect book by any stretch but i got it done i got it out there and so led to gold uh is anybody who's looking for transitioning from something to something else Uh, There's some steps and processes in there that may help you um, have some stepping stones or some insights that allowed me to break through my own resistance uh, into creation. So that would be, uh, I guess, a summary of why someone might want to read it and what was in it. And then also in that, in that book as well, Brian Tracy, uh, who's a very well-known author, writer, speaker in the U.S. and I think globally, um, he's written 75 or so plus books. He was my mentor and my coach for two years, uh, and he did the forward in that book for me. And so Brian's got some great insights and wisdom in that book as well.
2: Fantastic. And you started mentioning there the Iggy Principles, and you talked about a fear of writing that, and you wanted that to be your first book. What held you back from writing that first book? You know, it's that thing that
0: we started about fear, fear of what people would think fear of if I'd use the God word uh, in wor- in the world of business, how who I might turn off would I would I would I uh, not be able to continue to attract clients? Would people judge me for how I believed? Um, was the world ready to have uh, this type of a book um, at this time? Uh, who was I to write this book about spirituality? Who did I think I was? Um, so there was a lot of doubt, self-doubt. Um, concern about how it might affect my business, um, even though I was always a purpose-driven guy, and I, and my, and I, even previously I called myself a purpose-driven consultant. When you put on your your title now, which I have changed to that I'm a spiritual business activist, that either attracts or eliminates a lot of people. Uh, and so I had to be bold enough and strong enough to put my stake in the ground that regardless of who resonated with it. I could no longer hold it back and that my higher power and universe was calling me forth on it, even if I had zero or only one person that was inspired by it, because I realized it was not for anybody else than my my own soul's evolution, but I was not brave enough uh, up until this last year to write it. And I also realized there was other things and lessons I had to learn that I had not fully um, encompassed yet that the universe had for me and and the timing that it's funny that this came out during COVID and all that's happening, uh, the universe had a much better plan for the timing of this book and the maturation of it than I did.
2: Mm, Well done on congratulations on getting it out. So the subtitle of the book is The Power of Inviting Good In, which should be Iggy, versus Edging Good Out, and I'd imagine that stands for Ego. Yes. How How do you get the... You know, for you, what does that mean? And how did you come up with the term Iggy?
0: Yeah, there is a great author and I'm sure uh, people listening have heard of him. He's since passed, but he's uh, his name is Wayne Dyer. And Wayne was also from the U.S., lived in Hawaii uh, in his later years up until his passing. But we have something in the U.S. called PBS, the public broadcast system. And so he was like very big on all of those channels. But he also had many, many books that he wrote. And Wayne went from being a psychologist and a therapist in his early days. uh, He wrote something called The Erroneous Zones, which was more of a, 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 a book about mind and psychology. But as he started his own quest, he started becoming a spiritualist. And he started realizing that everything in the world also had spiritual intelligence. So as a young man, I started reading a lot of his stuff and watching his videos. And one of the things that struck me about him in one of his books, um, he talked about it a lot, but for whatever reason, when I read the sentence, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And he said, your ego is when you are edging good out, or when you are edging God out. So if you're in your ego, which we all have, and we can never eliminate our ego fully, just realize you are not always being your most authentic self. And so you are edging good out. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. And that was probably in my late twenties or like eight twenties, early thirties. And that's when I was climbing climbing, corporate America ladder. And it was about me, 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 what I was going to get, what title I was going to get, what was my paycheck going to be? What was my bonuses going to be? What kind of car was I going to drive? How big was my house going to be? Me, 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 I, 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 et cetera. So at the time I said, well, I I resonate with that. That's great. So how am I going to remind myself every day to stay out of my ego and stay? And I said, well, that would be inviting good in or inviting God in. So I, and I was always big on affirmations and self-visualization and writing uh, cards on index cards and goals. And so I just wrote down Iggy uh, and I'd said, am I an ego or am I an Iggy? And um, I went on the GoDaddy like ten or twelve years ago and saved a bunch of no don't uh, domain names. Iggy principles, Iggy CEO, got Iggy, get Iggy with it. Uh, <laughs> you know, all kind, I just saved them. I said I just have an instinct about it, and I didn't do anything with it for up until I just wrote this book ten years later. Uh, but over the years, I used it for myself every day. I even have a tattoo on my arm uh, that I got about Iggy, which I never had until I was fifty. Uh, five years old. I never wanted a tattoo. I'm like, why would anyone put a tattoo on? You can't ever take it off. And so I never wanted one, but I was in Thailand about two years ago with my, uh, after I had a speech in Kuala Lumpur and my wife and I were in Thailand walking on the beach and we saw a tattoo parlor. And I jokingly said, Hey, we should get tattoos. Uh, And she said, well, maybe and I looked at her and she said it like a wife would say like well maybe like she actually meant it versus sarcastically <laughs> like well may- yeah maybe uh, so I'm like really and she goes I'll think about it but the next day she was still open to it and so I thought whoa and she got a little tiny little tattoo herself but I designed this whole tattoo which ended and it actually ended up becoming the cover of my book uh, which is a yin yang sign and as above as below and so I got that on my arm so every day I'm reminded uh, in the shower as I look at my arm am I an Iggy or am I an ego
2: mm. <laughs> you can't get away from it so you're, you're living it now which is uh, fantastic one of the the things that you know fascinate me is around people who want to learn And we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people asked great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh,
0: wow. That's a great question. Um, the, uh, I don't, I have a, a four year old grandson. His name is Cove. And we have him um, during COVID, not as much as we did, but every time he comes over, I do something that I hadn't done before uh, in some way, or I hadn't done it since I was a small kid. So I think back about two weeks ago, um, I spent uh, two and a half hours with Cove building a Lego entire train kingdom Um, with moving parts and pieces, with all kinds of named characters, And he was such in fantasy land about it. And I just turned off my phone, turned off all my stuff. And I sat on the floor with thousands of pieces of Legos and blocks and stuff that was like stuff I hadn't seen, cranes and uh, moving pieces. And so I had not actually sat and ever built for two and a half hours a uh, a, a train track with trains and houses and uh, people. And uh, so that's (laughs) probably not the answer you were thinking you were looking for, but uh, that comes to mind. That's something I had not done. And that was by uh me asking questions of cove what do you want to do today cove and i was only supposed to be watching him for a half hour my wife went to the store uh so uh asking questions will sometimes lead to uh new creations no doubt about it
2: and there's there's nothing more beautiful than adults remembering that they need to play as well and so yeah absolutely keeps the brain curious and keeps the brain growing what oh, is... Yeah, I also I, I also think about uh, a few years
0: ago I had always wanted to take kung fu, uh, and uh, I had never ever ever done kung, kung fu or martial arts, and I ended up. Uh, joining a local martial arts class as a white belt of course and it was me and about uh 10 other kids that range from like 11 to 16. uh and i think there was one other person that maybe was in their 40s so uh when i was learning all my moves and having to do uh stuff that was another thing that comes to mind about learning something that i had not ever done before for sure Uh, so
2: good what is the one question that you would love to solve One question I would love to solve.
0: Why is death so mysterious?
2: Mm, fascinating. Oh, we could go down a big rabbit hole there, but that I'll, I'll leave it at that one question. Very good. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life?
0: I know it's, it probably sounds a little corny, but it really is being of service to others, in the way in which I can channel my unique uh, being. Um, I mean, I really have come to this level that I, I, I do believe I'm just a channel and a conduit for my higher power. Uh, and just like when you plug an outlet into a wall and something works when you plug it in, whether it's a television or a stereo, or uh, you know, we know we we think a lot about our phones and connecting signals now. I really just realized that I am a conduit on the planet to. Um, to be this conduit for my highest self. And that is usually being of service to others. And it's not how I expect it to be. It just means as I meet each individual or I have conversations, how so having an extraordinary life is being present in the present moment. And in that present moment, being as authentic and as of service as I can to the person or the people in which I'm with in that time period. And to me, that leads to an extraordinary life. Because when you do that, it usually leads to really cool things, cool relationships with them sometimes lead to monetary businesses or uh, charitable things or vacations or trips. And you just never know where that's going to lead to. So I find that that creates an extraordinary life for me uh, because I'm always open to being fluid and not being forced on what the outcome has to be.
2: Mm, And there's great power to the saying, the more you give, the more you get. Mm,
0: mm
2: -hmm. Very true. You've shared some really fascinating insights and you really enjoyed obviously talking around the lessons you've learned and the, and the great experiences you've had. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking that, Craig. Probably the easiest way is my website. Um, and again, my name is Steve Rogers, as uh was announced earlier, and people can remember Steve Rogers probably easily by Captain America is also named Steve Rogers. So uh I didn't knew that, did not know that until recent years when the Marvel comics became uh, popular again, and I'd check in hotels and people would say, Oh, Like Captain America, Steve Rogers. I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, (laughs) The only difference is I have a D in my name. So it's Steve and then R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot net. And on there, there is links to a lot of videos, blogs, all my social media sites. I do uh, do a webinar, a free webinar every couple of weeks called the EZEN webinar, which stands for Executive Employee and Entrepreneur and it's about incorporating executive principles into Zen thinking. Uh, So it's called the EZEN webinar. That's another way to learn more about what I do. And then of course, the books you mentioned, I'm on Amazon. Um, My first book had Audible and Kindle and all of those. And the new one uh, doesn't have Audible on for another two weeks, but Amazon's got my books and and stuff on there as well. But my my website is probably the easiest way, steverogers.net.
2: Brilliant, and we'll put those links to both the website and um, also the books in the show notes as well Steve it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today uh, you're sitting there in the car and I really appreciate your time as you're on your way to LA you I, I love how you you start out and you had this rebellious life and and you found yourself kind of leading in ways of doing things a bit different more than actually just go okay hey, come follow me it was like creating new pathways all the time to see how you took on and owned your own kind of way of life and how you wanted to live from a young person while still at high school and giving things a shot to the lessons you learned as a leader, you know, not only in the things that you did really well, but the things that scared the crap out of you as well and how you overcome those fears when dealing with the likes of walking to room with Warren Buffett or, you know, having billion dollar turnover. It's, it takes a lot to be able to work through that and to now bring it to life in your books and lead to uh, lead to gold or lead to gold. And then the Iggy principles, you know, really bring you something that is invigorating to the space and I think can really make a massive difference to a lot of leaders out there. I just really grateful in the way that you talk around your servant leadership. And I think that is so, so important. You know, we're not there, to tell people what to do as leaders. We are there to help and support people grow together. Uh, So thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it and uh, just thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Craig. And I, again, I appreciate it. When I saw I was gonna be on your your show and I looked at what you did, I'm like, ah, this guy is uh, really doing some amazing stuff. I love when people take the power, of talking about energy and performance, but then the performance of to their own desires and their own passions and their own outcome. And the way you slice it down and break it down for people in a very understandable, practical, fun and funny way, uh, but also full of uh, many uh, golden nuggets and the stuff that I saw you do, uh, you're definitely taking your own Iggy and your own life purpose and helping others on a, on a very massive level. So thanks for uh, for that as well.
2: Now oh, you're welcome. So it's time to get Iggy with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to an incredible conversation with Steve Rogers, overcoming the indulgent life on the Active CEO Podcast. Energy is the number one currency in leadership, and we don't often use it well enough. Yeah, you know, we f- we quite often will. Just keep spending and spending and spending rather than investing our energy. So I want you to look at three things when it comes to energy as a leader. One, schedule your energy. So think about how do you position recovery and how you're going to put in times that where you can re-energize yourself uh, and put those in your diary first before you start packing in all the other meetings. So when you're gonna recover, and when you're also going to re-energize yourself. Number two, focus your energy. How are you going to set your intention of where you will focus your attention and energy for your day, for a meeting, for a whole week, maybe a month, maybe a quarter or even a year? Think about how you want to focus that energy. How do you wanna turn up and show up and what type of energy do you wanna create in the room? And number three is invest your energy. So exercise daily, fuel your body with the right food, free your mind and recover with purpose. They are the three really important energy lessons for leadership. So number one, schedule your energy. Number two, focus your energy. And three, invest your energy. Now, if you'd like to learn a little bit more around break the CEO code and how you can better schedule, focus, and invest your energy, then please contact me at craig at n-r-g, the number two, perform.com, or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for joining us today and listening to that great conversation with Steve Rogers. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong.
1: Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG2Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the nrg to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.